Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories are some of the best we do here on this show. And today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up in Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today, he brings us a story you're going to have to hear to believe. It's all about love, old-fashioned values, and, well, breaking the law. Here's Tom. I slipped the ring on her finger, said I do and thought it was forever. Boy, was I wrong. So I've joined the shuffling line of millions of lonely people wondering where it all went wrong. What do you do with 15 years of memories? It is reassuring, however, to know that there are couples who make it through 40 or 50 years of marriage. Of course, they are usually as astonished as anyone else that they made it. That look of surprise in their newspaper anniversary pictures isn't an accident. I even know of a couple who made it that long without being married. It started in those lean depression days of the late 30s in my small New England hometown, where any woman who dyed her hair or plucked her eyebrows was snickered at, and divorce was something for movie stars. Dr. Joe was the town doctor, a quiet, mumbling man who made house calls at any hour of the day or night. He brought our family through all sorts of medical crises. He was devoted Catholic and he had a wife and two kids. He was so lost in his work, however, that his wife finally skipped off with a touring actor and even took the kids with her. Dr. Joe only worked harder after that. When I passed the bar exam in the 50s, He toyed with the idea of turning over years of unpaid bills to me for collection. But he never had the heart to do it. He was too nice. Dr. Joe met Clara Jensen at church social functions. Clara's husband had died in a plane crash a few years earlier. They became bridge partners and shared a basket at church outings, and they fell totally in love. According to my mother, who with her brother Jim ran a family funeral home a block away from the church and was a close friend of both, said they made great efforts to get a church annulment of his first marriage so that they could marry. But in those days, the church was very rigid. Years drifted by, but they never gave up hope. 
I lost track of them after having moved to the West Coast, but my 90-year-old mother sometimes mentioned them in our weekly phone conversations. During my last trip home, chatting over our usual cup of tea at her old kitchen table, I asked Mom about Dr. Joe and Clara. She didn't answer. Instead, she rose and hovered over the tea kettle on the stove, pretending to be busy. She said, talking to the tea kettle, I've done something very wrong. Judge O'Sullivan just called to tell me about it. She hesitated and then turning to me with eyes blazing and a smile of satisfaction set deep in her cheeks and I am so happy that I did it. What? I said, not quite sure of what I had heard. What's the joke, Helen Murphy? No joke, she started to sniffle. I stood up and embraced the lumpy little figure I had loved all my life, kissing her incredibly soft, freckled cheek. Hey, you've got a lawyer son. Don't worry, I can spring any woman who still doesn't eat meat on Friday and hasn't missed daily mass in years, unless you've committed mass murder. She shook her head as she dabbed at her eyes and nose with a tissue, waving away my attempt at humor. Have some more tea, she said, as she refilled our cups. I waited until she was ready to talk, and then it came spilling out. You asked about Dr. Joe and Clara. Oh, dear. I thought I had told you on the phone. Told me what? Dr. Joe died a few months ago. I think you were in Europe. He was raking leaves in his garden. The newspaper delivery boy found him. Oh, no. Was Clara with him? No, she was at her own place. She still had her own place? Didn't they live together? No, of course not, Mike. My God, they went together for 30 or 40 years. Didn't they sleep? She shook her head. They were very close, but they were also good Catholics. And when we come back, this unique voice and a listener to Our American Stories, a listener in Los Angeles on our affiliate there, KABC. And we're listening to Tom Ryan talking about the story of Dr. Joe and Clara Benson. Tom had moved out to the West Coast. His mom was still back on the East Coast, out on Long Island, and catching up on the news of this couple that he looked up to and admired. Another great listener's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and this one is from a listener, Tom Ryan, a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. And Tom grew up at a funeral parlor run by his family in Long Island, moved to L.A., but there was this one couple he always thought about and admired, and that's Joe and Clara. He was having a conversation with his mom when we last left off, and let's pick it up right here. People had standards in those days, not like today. All those years, unbelievable, I muttered. They always thought they would marry, but the diocese was so strict, so strict, she shook her head. How's she taking it? I asked. Tears started to flow again as she said with a sob, that's the other sad news. Clara passed away just last week. Remember I told you last year that she was fighting cancer. Dr. Joe was doing all he could for her, but then he went. I stared at the bottom of my teacup. That's so sad, both of them. So you had them waked out in front within a few months of each other? She nodded. A voice dropped off as she said, that's what I have to tell you. I broke the law. I did something I shouldn't have. But I feel so glad I did. Seeing the confused look on my face, she continued, Dr. Joe donated his vital organs to science. His two children finally turned up and requested that his remains be cremated. Their mother had recently died, they said. As usual, the crematorium returned Dr. Joe's ashes to us, and I stored them out in the hall closet. I nodded as I recalled the hall closet from childhood. Stacks of canister of ashes had lined the shelves of the closet for years. Many were never claimed by the families who either moved away or didn't want to come in and pay the funeral bill. Many of the paper name tags had fallen off. Sometimes before air conditioning, those with no name tags were used to prop open the front doors on hot summer nights at crowded wakes. I always smiled when I realized that unbeknownst to anyone else, the unclaimed ashes of a big muck-a-duck politician, as my mom called him, were used on many a hot night to humbly hold the door open for the constituents he had fleeced for so many years. Do Dr. Joe's kids want the ashes, I asked. Yes, Mom replied, they are fighting over the estate. It's sizable. Both children have lawyers. The daughter was adopted, and the son is claiming that she isn't entitled to anything. It's gotten pretty petty. Now both lawyers are claiming the ashes right away. So that's what Judge O'Sullivan was talking to you about? Yes, he sent me a copy of a court order. She pulled a blue-backed legal document from her nearby knitting basket and handed it to me. I guess it says I'm to give the ashes over to the court. 
As I read the order, I nodded in agreement. Yep, that's it. So what's so hot about that? She didn't answer directly. Instead, she put down her teacup, looked out the kitchen bay window dreamily, and said, Clara looked so beautiful in the casket in her peach dress, her hair done the way she liked it, her good pearls. She started to sniffle while speaking. Well, they waited for each other a very long time in full grace, so I'm sure they're together in heaven, I volunteered. She blushed and with a tight smile played around the corners of her mouth. I helped things a little, she murmured. Help things, I asked. An unsettling chill slid down my spine. She looked straight at me and said, when all the mourners had gone, the men were loading them into the limits to go to church. I went back to say a last goodbye to Clara before they came back to close the casket. I was all alone with her having a good cry when suddenly I remembered Dr. Joe's ashes in the closet. So, so, so she spoke rapidly. I pried off the top of the canister with those pliers we keep in that closet and poured all of Dr. Joe's ashes onto Clara's lap and into the satin lining of the casket. A voice rose with pride as she finished. A warm glow surged through me. You mean, a smile cut me off, Mike, Clara, and Dr. Joe are finally joined together in eternity, and I'm so happy for them that I just want to burst with joy when I think of it. I know that legally I had no right to disturb those ashes. Tears of happiness rolled down her freckled face. And now I'm in trouble. The court wants the ashes. What should I do? I kneeled next to her chair and hugged her and comforted her. She didn't see the tears of pride in the corners of my eyes. My mind raced as I searched for an answer. Mom, I talked quietly over her shoulder while still holding her. The law is very hard in ways, but it tries to be responsive to our human needs and desires. We know, and I'm sure Judge O'Sullivan would agree, if he knew that you were right, that Dr. Joe would have wanted to be with Clara. You did something beautiful. She broke away for a moment to dab her nose and eyes with the tissue. I stayed close to her and started to speak, but she blurted, He knows, and started to cry again. What? He knows, she repeated. Judge O'Sullivan knows what you did? She nodded. He's an old friend. We buried his mother and father. He knew Dr. Joe and Clara. They were close. I couldn't lie to him. I plopped down in the kitchen chair. Wow, was all I could manage. He said to talk to you, she continued. He knows you're a lawyer. What else did he say? Not much. He was silent when I told him. I think he almost cried. His voice broke, sort of. He said to talk to you, and oh yes, to tell you to get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it to his court clerk. 
That's exactly what he said. Get a canister of ashes with Dr. Joe's name on it? Yes. She just nodded and sniffled. I sipped my tea and smiled. The kitchen was quiet except for the ticking of the grandfather clock in the hallway. I headed for the hall closet. And what a story, and thanks to Tom Ryan. And again, he's a 95-year-old listener on KABC in Los Angeles. And thank you, Tom. And there are more to come from him, actually, because, well, that's not an accident what you just heard, folks. What a voice. What a story. And my goodness, there was a time, I mean, imagine that. The Catholic Church wouldn't annul that wedding. And so these two just could never live together. They just couldn't live together. They always thought they'd marry, but things were so strict. So, so strict. The mom said that. Clara passed away, and soon thereafter, Joe did. And that happened so often, folks, in life. We've seen it happen time and again in stories we tell. June Cash died, and Johnny Cash died not soon thereafter. And George Bush and Barbara Bush, look at how quickly that happened. And so it is when you lose that loved one for all those years. Well, the party just wants to join him. And my goodness, the way Tom's mom handled things, I broke the law. And I'm so glad I did. And sometimes, you know, folks, the rules don't make any sense. And that's a hard thing to teach your kids because you got to teach them to follow the rules, except when they shouldn't, right? Except when they shouldn't. And we want to hear your stories, any kind, love stories, inspirational stories, any kind at all, courage, faith, Hope, love, these are the things we write about a lot and talk about here on this show. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Tom Ryan's story and his mom's story about Joe and Clara. All of their stories together here on Our American Stories. celebration of National Bible Week here on Our American Stories. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the influence of the Bible on American literature, and specifically one American writer. By the way, the Bible influenced so many others that we thought it best to focus on just one. As a young man, American novelist and poet Herman Melville worked on a New England whaling ship. He came to share the fascination and terror the whalers felt toward the great beasts they hunted. His classic novel, Moby Dick, is nearly impossible to understand without a working knowledge of the Bible. In this great scene I'm about to read, the crew of the whaler ship Pequod hears a sermon and a hymn based on the story of Jonah in the Bible by the ship's resident preacher, Father Mapple. This is chapter 9 of Moby Dick called the sermon. 
Father Mapple rose and in a mild voice of unassuming authority ordered the scattered people to condense. Starboard gangway, there. Sideway to larboard, larboard gangway to starboard. Midships, midships. There was a low rumbling of heavy sea boots among the benches and a still slighter shuffling of women's shoes. And all was quiet again and every eye on the preacher. He paused a little, then kneeling in the pulpit's bows, he folded his large brown hands across his chest, uplifted his closed eyes, and offered a prayer so deeply devout that he seemed kneeling and praying at the bottom of the sea. This ended in a prolonged, solemn tone, like the continual tolling of a bell in a ship that's foundering at sea in a fog. In such tones, he commenced reading the following hymn, but changing his manner toward the concluding stanzas, burst forth with appealing exultation and joy. The ribs and terrors in the whale arched over me a dismal gloom, while all God's sunlit waves rolled by and lift me deepening down to doom. I saw the opening maw of hell with endless pains and sorrow there, which none but they that feel can tell. Oh, I was plunging to despair. In black distress I called my God when I could scarce believe him mine. He bowed his ear to my complaints. No more the well did me confine. With speed he flew to my relief as on a radiant dolphin born, awful yet bright as lightning shone the face of my deliverer God. My song forever shall record that terrible, that joyful hour. I give the glory to my God, is all the mercy and the power. Nearly all joined in singing that hymn, which swelled high above the howling of the storm. A brief pause ensued. The preacher, he slowly turned over the leaves of the Bible, and at last, folding his hand down upon the proper page, said, Beloved shipmates, clinch the last verse of the first chapter of Jonah. And God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, this book, containing only four chapters, only four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of scriptures. And yet, what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us in this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the floods surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the water, seaweed, and all the slime of the sea about us. But what is it about this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson, a lesson to us all as sinful men, and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. As sinful men, it is a lesson to us all, because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, 
suddenly awaken fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally, the deliverance and joy of Jonah. As with all sinners among men, the sin of this son of Amittai was in his willful disobedience of the command of God. Never mind now what that command was or how conveyed, which he found a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. With his sin of disobedience in him, Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. He thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign, but only the captains of this earth. A bit later in this same chapter, Father Mapple concludes this remarkable sermon. Quote, As we have seen, God came upon him in the well and swallowed him down to living gulfs of doom and with swift slantings tore him along into the midst of the seas where the eddying depth sucked him 10,000 fathoms down and the weeds were wrapped about his head and all the watery world of woe bowled over him. Yet even then, beyond the reach of any plummet, out of the belly of hell, when the whale grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, even then God heard the engulfed, repenting prophet when he cried. And then God spake unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of the sea, the whale came breaching up toward the warm and pleasant sun and all the delights of air and earth and vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. When the word of the Lord came a second time, and Jonah, bruised and beaten, his ears like two seashells, still multitudinously murmuring of the ocean, Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth to the face of falsehood. That was all. This, shipmates, this is that other lesson. And woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the waters when God has brewed them into a gale. Woe to him who seeks to pleasure rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be true, even though to be false for salvation. Yea, woe to him who, as the great pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others, is himself a castaway. And those are the words written a century and a half ago by the great Herman Melville. And again, this story is unimaginable without a working knowledge of the Bible. He's quoting from it in and out. This pastor, Pastor Mapple, rallying the men on the Pequod. One of the great stories in American history. And my goodness, 
You almost can't read modern writing after listening to that. And my goodness, I did a disservice. I will love, I would love to hear a great professional actor read that. The next time this does get read, it'll be read by someone like that. But I had to take my shot, folks. This is Lee Habib celebrating National Bible Week here on Our American Stories, the story of Herman Melville, the story of Moby Dick, American literature story, inextricably intertwined with the Bible, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating National Bible Week all week long this week, and you're listening to the birds and their song, Turn, 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 and all of these words come from, well, the Bible, Ecclesiastes to be more specific. Well, it turns out that this song was written in the 1950s by folk singer Pete Seeger. And all the lyrics, well, almost all of them, came from a book called the Bible. More specifically, Ecclesiastes. Seeger wrote and sang the song, and it came out on his album, The Bitter and the Sweet. Not much came of it. Also, there was a folk group called the Limelighters, and they too recorded the song. But the song became an international hit in late 1965 when it was adopted by the American band The Birds. The single dropped in October of 1965 and reached number one on the charts by December. Here's Pete Seeger. Most people have learned the song from The Birds record, so I sing their version of it rather than what I... Mine's okay, but it's... But uh, as long as they're singing it that way, I'll sing it their version. Uh, although never can tell what will happen in the ages. It's an extraordinary poem, though. Uh, somebody made a whole, whole book out of it. Can't remember the name of the publisher. But they got a wonderful illustrator to do uh, illustrations for every single line in the song. I changed it. I, of course, I, they, they put the absolute, uh, the King James translation and then they print what I did with it. I, I rearranged it very slightly so it would rhyme better. Time of war, time of peace, a time you may embrace, and embrace and peace. Time of love, a time of hate, time of war, time of peace. Oh, 
time of a time of time of love, a time of hate, a time of peace. I swear it's not too late. So I added one line of my own uh, to the King James version. But uh, what a what a poem that is! It it is a something worth considering that uh, the the world is full of opposites intertangled, the good and bad tangling up all the time. Nobody knows. God only knows. God only knows. And again, that's Pete Seeger talking about the song that he wrote that was essentially lifted from what he called an extraordinary poem. And that's what Ecclesiastes is. If you're not a believing Christian, well, it doesn't matter. You can still love these words and love the poetry and love the meaning behind them because that's the thing. You're listening and you're talking about these opposites and the competing duality of the nature of man. And by the way, Ecclesiastes was King Solomon, of course. He was the original author. And these words were written somewhere between the 3rd and 10th centuries B.C. And yet they continued to have a power and relevance in the middle of the 20th century as rock and roll was establishing its dominance as a musical genre. And now let's talk about another American writer, and that's Bruce Springsteen. And for anybody who's a fan, and my goodness, I don't think there are many artists of the 20th century who have more fans. He finished up a great run on Broadway. He's won a Grammy, a Tony, and, well, an Oscar, too, for his performance in Streets of Philadelphia. And playing and writing his whole life, Anyone who knows his music knows Bruce has written about just a few things in his life. About sin, about faith, about family, about work, and about God. That's his whole catalog, folks. It's all the music. It's why he's taken so seriously. But perhaps Bruce Springsteen's most direct song is reflected in his 1978 composition, Adam Raised a Cane, which was off his Darkness on the Edge of Town record. His politics may lean to the left, but his struggles, his writing, has always focused on eternal things, not political things. The song starts off like this. In the summer that I was baptized, my father held me to his side. As they put me into the water, he said how on that day I cried. We were prisoners of love, of love in chains. He was standing in the door. I was standing in the rain with the same hot blood burning in our veins. Adam raised a cane. Adam raised a cane. All of the old faces asked you why you're back. They fit you with position and the keys to your daddy's Cadillac. In the darkness of your room, your mother calls you by your true name. You remember the faces, the places, the names. You know it's never over. It's relentless as the rain. Adam raised a cane. Adam raised a cane. In the Bible, Cain slew Abel, and east of Eden, Mama, he was cast. You're born into this life pain for the sins of somebody else's past. Well, Daddy worked his whole life for nothing but the pain. Now he walks these empty rooms looking for something to blame. You inherit the sins. You inherit the flames. 
Adam raised a cane, lost but not forgotten, from the dark heart of a dream. Adam raised a cane. And there you have it. That's Bruce Springsteen, Adam Raised a Cane. Darkness is my favorite record of his. Of all of them, there are so many great ones. You've also heard the story tonight of the birds in National Bible Week. We're celebrating it all week long. Special thanks to Chuck Stetson at the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education. Their work on Bible literacy is so important. Their book, The Bible and Its Influence, it's in 650 high schools in America. Let's make it 6,000. 
and their curriculum, Wisdom Literature from the Bible. Well, that's their latest offering, and you can find all of this at teachthebibleinschools.org. National Bible Week, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bono introducing The Streets With No Name. And he's been doing this a lot in his life now, singing his favorite gospel song openly and with passion. We've done a lot of stories of the song here on this show. This is the first time we're spending an hour. And it's not just the story of a song. It's the story of a man, John Newton's story, the writer of Amazing Grace. And John Newton grew up in the 18th century under very difficult conditions. His father was a seaman out in the sea, making his living rough, rough times, rough, rough life. And to tell the story of John Newton and his early life and the seminal experience in his life, which was getting drafted at a very young age to go off and fight on a military warship. Imagine this, the 18th century, a young man just, well, you don't exactly volunteer for these positions back then. Here's Brian Edwards, author of Through Many Dangers, The Story of John Newton. He gave a lecture telling this mesmerizing story. It started with this seminal moment in young John Newton's life. 1744, the French fleet was becoming increasingly aggressive in the Channel, and King George II grew alarmed. The British Navy was always short of sailors. After all, who in his right mind would volunteer to be treated like an animal and suffer the butchery of 18th century naval warfare for just 24 shillings a month? That's £1.20 in modern money, especially when you could earn at least twice that amount if you were in the merchant service. And the government's answer to the shortage of recruitment was the infamous press gang. As part of the war effort, on Saturday the 25th of February, 1744, a day of strong gales with snow, First Lieutenant Thomas Ruffin delivered to Captain Carteret of HMS Harwich, anchored just off Sheerness in Kent, eight impressed men, one of whom was John Newton. A merchant sailor was always a prime target of the press gangs, and his bandy legs, his 
bawdy language and his rolling gait was a giveaway on the waterfront at Chatham. His name was duly entered into the muster roll early in March. HMS Harridge was a fourth-rate man of war, 976 tons, 50 guns, a length of 140 feet, and a crew of 300. For a month, John suffered cruelly as new crew members were literally beaten into submission. Admiral Vernon, one of the more humane admirals of his time, commented, I quote, Our fleets are defrauded by injustice, marred by violence and maintained by cruelty. Food was almost inedible, water foul, discipline harsh, escape virtually impossible. And yet because his father was a merchant sea captain and Newton himself had already been to sea with his father, he was soon promoted as midshipman. Newton had a rough start, but he didn't give up. Even amidst his forced service, he did not lose hope. Specifically with the love of his life, Polly, he made sure to write her as often as he could. On the 24th of January, 1745, John, just off a four-hour watch and at one o'clock in the morning, found a space somewhere on the cramped crew quarters to write a letter. He began, Dear Polly. This is the first letter we have from Newton's pen, and it's a warm, flowing, passionate, 18th-century love letter, which closed, I am your most faithful, devoted admirer, Newton. And it ended with a wonderful flourish of squiggles. John was turned 19 and far removed from his mother's Christian faith. Mary Catlett, whom he nicknamed Polly, was just 16 two days before the letter was written. John was raised with a strong Christian faith, but the life of a seaman didn't afford him the best environment to grow into a godly man. All of his early Christian influence came from his mom. John was born on the 24th of July, 1725, at a little village called Wapping, just a mile downriver from the Tower of London. His mother, Elizabeth, was married to a merchant captain living in Red Lion Street. She was a sincere Christian and a member of the independent chapel of Dr. Jennings. John was brought up, therefore, on Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Sadly, his mother died just before John's seventh birthday, and by the age of 11, he was at sea with his father. Two years of inferior schooling was all that he ever had. Dr. Johnson, the great uh, lexographer, uh, said uh, of Wapping that one, day, one had only to visit the place, quote, to see such modes of life that one could scarcely imagine. Well, before he was the age of 11, John had seen all those modes of life. He could walk down the end of his street and at execution dock, as it was known, he could watch mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them. He saw at a young age things most adults could not handle, but he maintained a soft side, and especially for the woman he gave his heart to. In 1742, John's father had arranged for him to take a job in Jamaica, and with time to kill beforehand, he visited the family of Mr. and Mrs. Catlett in Chatham, uh, in whose home Elizabeth Newton had died. They had six children, and Mary, the eldest girl, was almost 14 years when he first met her. As soon as John saw her, he fell madly in love with his Polly. 
I love that he claimed exceeded all that the Romantics ever thought of, and it remained true and steadfast and unwavering until Mary's death almost 50 years later. And when we come back, more on the life of John Newton, author, writer of Amazing Grace, and we'll capture and chronicle how that song crossed an ocean and became the most played, sung, and known gospel song in America and, of course, the world. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we continue with the story of a song, and of course, the story of a man, the song Amazing Grace, the man John Newton who wrote it. Newton's life did not fly into a happily ever after parade of events. Indeed, all the evil that he experienced ultimately became entrenched in his heart. But from now on, his life became a tangled web of romance, impetuous action, and unbelief. John missed his boat to Jamaica, angered his father, visited Chatham as often as he could, overstayed his welcome, had no career to offer Mary or impress her parents, and finally, for his stupidity, he was himself impressed into His Majesty's Navy. When he wrote that passionate love letter in January 1745, John Newton had been converted to a free-thinking deist. That is, if there is a God, and we cannot know if there is, he's unconcerned, unconnected with this world. And therefore, from now on, morality was for John Newton to decide. He would plan his own life. The Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts were things of the past. John Newton became an evangelist for unbelief. Years later, he wrote in his diary on the 21st of March, 1757, I quote, I was at that time a sinner beyond the common measure of men, having fallen from a pretty close outward profession of the gospel into the blackest apostasy, so that at the age of 22, or rather much sooner, I not only took counsel with the ungodly and walked in the way of sinners, but I was set in the seat of the scorner. I had lived for about four years, not a denier only, but a despiser of the gospel, venting the most outrageous blasphemies in all companies and upon all occasions, speaking of redemption, that amazing display of divine love, wisdom and power as an unholy, insignificant thing, and the person of my ever-blessed and gracious Redeemer as an imposter. In all this time, I believe I never was in the company of any person that made the least pretense of a religious life, but I either endeavoured to laugh him out of it, or if that failed, scorned him in my heart. Never opened or spoke of the scriptures, but in order to introduce a profane jest upon them. Never spent half an hour with anyone with freedom, but I tempted him to sin. For my practice was as vile and abominable as my principles.' 
so that I not only, as many others, indulge youthful sallies, as they are called by some, but lived in the habitual practice of every vice in which my age and circumstances were capable, theft and drunkenness only excepted. And in all these, I was a ringleader and a seducer of others. This was a man who had come to hate God and all those that followed him. The one thing that his heart had a space for, that he longed for, besides his evil ways, was his Mary, and he tried to reach her, but to no avail. The thought of five years' separation from Mary was too much for John, and shortly after that love letter was written, John Newton deserted his ship. He was recaptured by dragoons, and Captain Carteret ordered what was known then as a red-checked shirt on the grating. 25 to 30 lashes across his bare back, after which he was carried below where his wounds were cauterized with vinegar, neat spirit, salt water or hot tar, and for days he was in a delirium. In May 1745, the fleet was anchored at Madeira and Newton managed to get himself exchanged for a seaman from a small merchant ship called the Pegasus. And this was possibly his introduction to slavery. The Pegasus was outward bound for Sierra Leone and the adjacent parts of the West African coast. If the Pegasus was a slave trader, her cargo was composed of an uninteresting assortment of lead, copper kettles, brass pans, ladles, basins, boilers, guns, gunpowder, knives and other miscellaneous items. And then, darkly start, stored away in her hold was a grisly array of chains, shackles, neck collars, leg and handcuffs and thumbscrews. Part of her cargo was the money with which to purchase slaves from the local traders on the West African coast, and the other part was the means by which the slaves were kept in order during the fearful second leg of the trade mission from Africa to the West Indies or the Americas, a journey often exceeding seven weeks. Having offloaded the slaves... The ship would then take on sugar, ginger, rum, pearls, cotton and all the other commodities eagerly awaited by the British consumers and it would return home across the final leg of the Atlantic Ocean. It's what became known as the triangular trade. And thus began John Newton's deep work and entanglement with his darkest, darkest of professions, the slave trade itself. John Newton was to become very familiar with this triangular trade, which would generally take somewhere between 12 and 14 months to complete. It was considered at the time, I quote, a genteel occupation. He might have done well, but he worked for an unscrupulous trader and he became a virtual slave himself and the pity of slaves. In fact, he sank so low that he dabbled in animism, at one time even worshipped the moon, and was in the parlance of the time a white man become black. He lived and believed like the natives. In February 1747, by a quite remarkable coincidence, he found himself on board a merchant ship, the Greyhound, bound for England. Only his love for Mary and a blatant lie from the ship's captain actually made him head for home. He soon angered the captain by his foul language and bawdy songs, which often ridiculed both the ship and the captain without mentioning either of them by name. But, of course, by the same token, he was very popular with the crew. 
Halfway across the Atlantic, disaster hit the little ship. On the 10th of March, 1748, a fierce storm shattered the mast and rigging, and the little ship was only kept afloat by her cargo of timber and beeswax. Newton joked that it would be something to laugh over a jug of beer when they arrived at port, to which a sailor on board responded, Oh, no, no, it's too late now. And that, for some reason, went through Newton like a knife. For the first time since a childhood, Newton found himself praying. Lashed to the wheel or working the pumps gave him time to think. Involuntarily, he repeated the words that he had learned from his mother, Proverbs 1, 23, all the way through 31, and his memory seemed aided as he muttered above the wind and the torn canvas these condemning words. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man has regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they shall call me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Finally, after days of anguish and torture of mind, hope and peace flooded in as he put his wavering trust in Christ alone. He later wrote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The greyhound, broken and barely afloat, arrived off Ireland in Loch Swilly, appropriately on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1748. John Newton's hard heart had been beaten soft, but he had nothing. In his old ways, well, they began calling to him. No money, and with not enough gall to borrow from Polly's father, John set out on what he called his long, lonely walk back to Liverpool. He couldn't afford a coach. He walked every one of the 250 miles of the journey. He signed on as first mate on a slave ship, the Brownlow, and he backslid to the point of becoming almost as bad as before. A near-fatal fever brought him to his senses, and in his delirium and just out of it, he gave his life wholly to Christ. And when we come back, more of the story of Amazing Grace. It's John Newton's story. Of course, it's the story of the song. And of course, it's the story of God's influence himself on a man who needed saving and needed grace. The story of Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of John Newton and the story of a song, Amazing Grace. And we're listening, by the way, to Brian Edwards, the author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. God had brought Newton to his breaking point yet again, and finally his life began to fall in place. But he had not yet realized the evils of the slave trade. On the 1st of February, back home, 1750, John married Mary at St. Margaret's Parish Church in Rochester, Kent. He had been offered a ship of his own. Now he had something to offer her, and of course, in 18th century style, her father as well. Six months later, in command of his own ship, the Duke of Argyle, a hundred tons and a crew of almost 30, including the captain and mate, he set out on his first journey as a slave ship captain. And for this genteel occupation, he sought the prayers of Christian people before he left. Now, his voyages were always fraught with danger. In the first place, The captain always had, by definition, an unruly crew. Sometimes he recorded in his log that he had to pin some of them to the deck in irons in order to bring them to heel. And then there was always the problem of the slaves looking for an opportunity to escape with 100, 150 or more below decks packed in uh, like books on a shelf. If they did manage to break free, and there are many records where they did on ships, they would massacre understandingly the entire crew before they themselves uh, tried to bring the ship back home. And then, with an unruly crew and the slaves always looking for an opportunity for escape, there was disease and fever. Newton later worked out that something like one out of five sailors never returned home, which compared roughly to the figure of one of all four slaves who died in transit. And when you did land on the African coast or the West Indies, intrigue and treachery by black and white traders alike was rife. Newton said there was only one person on the African coast he ever trusted. Privateers and pirates ruled the seas. Many of the ships to and froing in an earlier century between the new new lands of America and uh, the home country disappeared without trace because the Barbary pirates from North Africa that were also patrolling the seas made sure that the economy of the North African coast depended upon white slaves, a fact that is not often brought to notice. There was bad weather too and not very good navigation tools and rats ate at the cells and the feet of slaves and sailors alike. This was not a trip. He took only once. He made three journeys in this command position, but he was increasingly uncomfortable with his way of life, which he said felt more like a turnkey or jailer, and it was. And, of course, he hated his separation from Mary, but he had no other career. He was a sailor. He knew nothing else. In November 1754, he was waiting for the fourth command in charge of a brand new ship that was being built for him. He was, in fact, a most successful uh, slave trader, and on his, his third and what proved to be his last voyage, he lost not one member of the crew and not one slave in his journeying, which is unique in the annals of the early the slave traders. But while he was waiting for this in Liverpool, he suddenly experienced a seizure which passed him out for just a few minutes. He recovered. He never experienced it again, but it ended his sailing career. So from August 1755, he was a customs officer at Liverpool. He was actually known as a tide surveyor. His job was to be rowed out by a party of men that he had under his command to every incoming ship and search them for contraband, uh, which, of course, he was very able to do, being an experienced sea captain himself. He knew where you would hide something on board. 
He changed careers again and began his adjustment to land life in Liverpool. Liverpool was a very hard city. Hard and godless. But it was while he was here that he began writing sermons and felt called to the ministry and was invited to preach in one or two churches. He nearly entered the independent ministry and there were times when he seriously considered becoming an evangelist for John Wesley and John Wesley would like him to have considered becoming his second in command to take over leadership when he himself died. But as it happened, and if I may cut the story shorter, on the 17th of June, 1764, he was ordained into the Church of England and settled at Oney in Buckinghamshire as curate in charge of St. Peter's and St. Paul's. And for 16 years, he was a patient, hard-working, caring country parson, often, we are told, wearing his old sea captain's jacket as he visited his people. Not very clerical, but that was Newton. What was his ministry like as a pastor? He wasn't apparently a great orator. Richard Cecil, his first biographer, said, I quote, his utterance was far from clear and his attitudes ungraceful. But he was a warm preacher and he had a consistent life to back it up. He once wrote, I measure ministers by square measure. I have no idea of the size of the table if you only tell me how long it is. But if you tell me how wide it is, I can tell you all its dimensions. So when you tell me what a man is in the pulpit, I want to know what he is like out of the pulpit before I shall know his size. His aim, he once said, was not to acquire the character of a ready speaker, but to win souls to Christ. He claimed he only preached longer than an hour when he had very little to say. Newton was a humble man, a self-taught man, but then came one of the more important moments in his life. He sat down and he wrote the book about his own life story, and it caused quite a sensation. The first year at Olney saw the publication, 1764, of his story, An Authentic Narrative. It was remarkably successful, translated into many languages as well. It was the story of his life up to that point, that year, 1764. Students, politicians, even an admiral made the day's journey from London to Oney to see this man once beaten on deck for deserting his ship. What an incredible testimony of a changed life. Newton continued his testimony by writing hymns, but he did this in a very creative and purposeful way. Now, for years, John composed a short aid memoir for his congregation. It was a gift he employed so badly when he was at sea and was now turning to the service of the master. It could take him up to two days to compose a hymn, but when it was completed, it was actually the outline of his sermon. He learned it because as he walked down the streets, he heard the women at their bobbins, their bobbin tells, reciting little ditties. It's where all the village gossip went the rounds, actually. And they would cite a ditty to keep them in a rhythm of their, of their bo lace bobbins. And he realized that they had a remarkable memory of remembering verses. So he thought, well, why don't I give them something worthwhile remembering? And he would give an outline of his sermon in the form of a hymn. They forgot the sermon. They learned the hymn they knew what the sermon was all about 
Eventually, he wrote a new hymn for his prayer meeting each week and frequently expounded it to the congregation before they were permitted to, permitted to sing it for the first time. He began in earnest at the close of 1772, and within six years, he had written and expounded over 300 hymns. Now, many of his hymns were topical, and that's why they haven't come down to us. They reflected life at Olney, winter, spring, summer, harvest, a violent storm, a sharp frost, the earthquake of 1775, an eclipse of the moon on the 30th of July, 1776, the great fire at Olney, the year later, 1777, and even the visit of a lion to the town. They all provided local themes for hymns that would fix people's minds on much more important issues. Some of the hymns, of course, have become part of our national heritage. He was a godly man, John Newton, but practical too. His understanding of the human heart, his experience of it, equipped him to lead and teach God's word in a way that made sense for the everyday life. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, well, that's just the story of John Newton's life. His famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was based upon a sermon he preached on the first morning of a new year from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, where King David reviews his, the mercy of God to a man as weak and sinful as himself. And John Newton in this hymn, as you well know, reviewed his own life. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the song, the verses, came to America and became, well, the song we all know and love. The story of a song, Amazing Grace. This is Our American Stories. listening to Andrea Bocelli, his version of Amazing Grace. This is the story of a song. We just covered John Newton's life. He wrote the words. What about the music? Where did it come from and how did it come to America? How did this American, essentially American song get here from Great Britain? Well, that story's chronicled in Stephen Turner's Amazing Grace. Pick the book up. It's terrific. He also wrote the great book, A Man Called Cash. I don't think there's a finer music writer in America than Steve Turner. Well, he started off with a quote from George Pullen Jackson, who wrote the book Spiritual Folk Songs of Early America. This is a 1937 book, a musicologist. And he wrote, quote, The poem is by Newton, but the tune's source is unknown to the Southern compilers. In other words, he had searched, he couldn't find it. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because there are some breakthrough artists that take this song into the 20th century and propel it 
into every room, every bedroom in America and the world. And one of the first is a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who had this to say about the song and about the types of music that imbued the song with its melodies and its rhythms. She said, quote, I believe the blues and jazz music and even rock and roll stuff all got their beat and their melody from the sanctified church. We Baptists sang sweet and we had the long and short meter on beautiful songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But when those holiness people tore into I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me up, they came up with a real jubilation. Let's take a listen to Mahalia Jackson's version. And then it was the Falkies who really popularized the song. Said Turner, quote, Pete Seeger seemed like an unlikely user of Amazing Grace. Not only was he not a Christian, but at a time when the most feared enemy of Christian America was godless Russia, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And then came the hit of all hits, Judy Collins. Again, another Falkie. And the watershed event was this a cappella single released by Judy in December of 1970, which climbed into the bestseller charts in both Britain and America. Although a pop hit, Turner wrote, Collins was not a pop singer. She was a folk singer who never disguised her roots. Her recording of Amazing Grace owed nothing to either rock or pop and in fact flouted the conventional wisdom of both. Said Judy Collins, quote, It was a song that I felt and had always known. It had come down to me from rural Tennessee, where my mom's family had produced missionaries and ministers, and from Idaho, where my dad had farmed. It was sung in the Methodist church in Denver, where I was a part of the choir as a child. Here's Judy Collins' version. That said 
Of the 500 commercially released recordings held by the Library of Congress, 97% were made in the years after Judy Collins recorded that song. And by the way, she's not a believer, but she loved the song, and that's what's so beautiful about this country. The non-believers can celebrate believers' words, and sometimes vice versa. Now let's take a walk through some of the other great versions of this song, and there are so many. But let's take a listen to how Al Green... Sets things up. And just a little bit of this. One verse. Ah, ha, And from the soulful Memphis sounds across the pond to Ireland and the Celtic women. And back to the more urban and African-American traditions, here's Ray Charles. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton said this about himself, his own life, and one of the last things he ever wrote, actually. And he was writing this to his God, quote, Perhaps thy grace may have recovered some from an equal degree of apostasy, infidelity, and profligacy, but few of them have been redeemed from such a state of misery and depression as I was in upon the coast of Africa when thy unsought mercy wrought for my deliverance. And so we close with Alan Jackson. This is our American stories, the story of a song, John Newton's story, Amazing Grace's story. Amazing Grace, how sweet the 
Yeah, I first. 